Castle 116 for August 3rd, 2010. Paper Cut Scissors by Holly Black. Rated PG. Hello, and welcome to Podcastle. I'm Anna Schwinn, the less frequently heard half of the editorial team. Before you panic, nothing has happened to Dave, nor will I be taking a larger role in recording intros. The reason you're hearing from me today is because I have particular expertise and particular love with the subject matter of this week's story. Like the protagonist of the story you are about to hear, I've been to library school. When I read Paper Cut Scissors for the very first time, I had the sneaking suspicion that Holly Black, this week's author, must have been to library school as well, because the details are so exact, so true. I could tell you a number of things about libraries and about library school that might enhance your enjoyment of the story, such as the holy war nature of conversations about Dewey versus LC classifications, or the anecdote of the woman in one of my classes who'd been a school librarian for decades and, during a conversation on censorship, described cutting out and gluing on little sets of clothing to depictions of cherubim in children's books. When she finished her confession, she said, I guess I was wrong to do that. Or I could tell you about the reference interview, wherein the librarian tricks the patron into telling them what they really wish to know, instead of whatever harebrained thing the patron first asks for, which is never what they came to find out. But I won't go into that. Instead, I'm going to tell you about a man named Ranganathan. Ranganathan was a mathematician turned librarian who gifted the fledgling field of librarianship with seminal and influential concepts in the form of five laws. I'm only going to talk about two of them, the second and the third. Ranganathan's second law is every reader his or her book. Every person who comes into a library or a bookstore is looking for a book. Any given reader wants a different book from any other given reader. But the purpose of a library is to have sufficient books and sufficient readers that readers find their books more often than not. I've heard of people who go into secondhand bookstores and buy favorite books. It makes them sad to see on the shelf, as though the book is forlorn and unloved because someone sold it and removed it from their home. This is Ranganathan's second law in action. The buyer, even if they already own a copy, knows that's their book and they feel compelled to take it up and take it home. The corollary to every reader his or her book is the third law. Every book, its reader. The book itself has a specific reader somewhere, and the librarian's job is to facilitate that hookup between the book and its destined reader, whether the reader knows they are looking for that book or not. I love this law because it gives credence to the impetus of the book, Something like the old hacker idiom, information wants to be free. Strictly speaking, information has no desires and thus it wants nothing. And yet, the way information acts in the world, it does prefer freedom over obscurity. In the same mode, books are created with a purpose, and their purpose is to be read, not generally by an amorphous public, but by a specific reader. And there you have it, the core of librarianship. Pairing up books and readers, finding you your written soulmate. 
and making sure each book continues to be found by the one who requires it. Paper Cut Scissors was written by Holly Black, as I've told you already, and appeared in her collection The Poison Eaters, published earlier this year. Listeners will probably remember Podcastle ran another story from this collection, episode 104, The Dog King. If you have a child between the ages of 6 and 11, you probably know Holly Black is the best-selling author of The Spiderwick Chronicles. But that's not the limit of what she's written, not by any means. She has just finished the third book in her Eisner-nominated graphic novel series, The Good Neighbors, and is working on Red Glove, the second novel in the Curse Workers series. White Cat, the first in the series, came out in May and is about capers, curse magic, and memory. Find out more about Holly Black at her website, www.blackholly.com. Today's story is read for us by podcaster extraordinaire Matthew Wayne Selznick, a creator whose toolbox includes words, music, pictures, and people. His fiction, music, and numerous other creative endeavors can be found at mattselznick.com. So, enjoy the dog days of summer and this story, which kicks off our Borderlands of Fantasy Month. We're taking you to some of the more interstitial grounds of the vast country of fantasy during August, and we eagerly await your travel logs, even when they question whether or not we've left this gracious land behind us altogether. Believe me, for the things you'll experience in these less traveled pathways, it's worth the journey. Paper Cuts Scissors by Holly Black 000 Generalities When Justin started graduate school in library science, he tried to sit next to the older women who now needed a degree as media specialists to keep the same job they'd done for years. He avoided the hipster girls, fresh from undergrad, wearing black turtlenecks with silver jewelry molded in menacing shapes and planning careers in public libraries. Those girls seemed as dangerous as books that unexpectedly killed their protagonists. He wasn't used to being around people anymore. He fidgeted with his freshly cut hair and ran shaking fingers over the razor burn on his pale skin. He didn't meet anyone's eyes as he dutifully learned about new user interfaces and how to conduct a reference interview. He wrote papers with pages of citations. He read pile after pile of genre novels to understand what people saw in inspirational romance or forensic mysteries, but he was careful to read the ends before the beginnings. He told himself that he could hold it together. At night, when all his reading was done and he'd printed all the papers he needed for the next day, he tried not to open Linda's book. He'd read it so many times that he should know it by heart, but the words kept changing. She was always in danger. She'd nearly got run over by a train and frozen on a long march to Moscow, while Justin had sat on his parents' pull-out couch in the den and forgotten to eat. While his hair had grown long and his fingernails jagged, until his friends had stopped coming over until he remembered the one thing he could do to get her out. One afternoon, Justin checked the notice board and saw a sign. Looking for library student to organize private collection. 555-2164. $10 an hour. 
His heart sped. Finally, it had to be. He punched the number into his cell phone, and a man answered. Please, Justin said. He had practiced a convincing speech, but he couldn't remember a word of it. His voice shook. I, I, need, I need this job. I'm, I'm very dedicated, very conscient. You're hired, said the man. Relief made him light-headed. He sagged against the painted cinder block wall of the hallway. After, in classification theory, Sarah Pete turned half around in her chair. Her earrings swung like daggers. Rock, paper, scissors for who buys coffee at the break. Coffee? His voice came out louder than he'd intended. From the vending machine, she said and made a fist. One, two, three. Rock, break, scissors. Justin lost. I take it black, said Sarah. One hundred. Philosophy and Psychology. The private collection that Justin was supposed to organize was located in the basement of a large Victorian house outside New Brunswick. He drove there in his beat-up Altima and parked in the driveway. He didn't see another car and wondered if Mr. Sandlin, the man he was sure he'd spoken with on the phone, had forgotten that he was coming. According to his watch, it was quarter to seven in the evening. He was fifteen minutes early. When Justin knocked on the door... He was met by a gentleman in a waistcoat. He had a slight paunch and long hair tied back in a ponytail. Excellent, the man said, eager. I'm Sandlin. Justin, said Justin. He hoped his palms weren't sweating. Each year I hire a new library student. You'll pick up where the last one left off. Dewey Decimal. No Library of Congress. Got it? I, I understand perfectly, Justin said. Sandlin led Justin through a house shrouded in white sheeting, down a dusty staircase to a cavernous basement. Masses of bookshelves formed a maze beneath swaying chandeliers. Justin sucked in his breath. There's a desk somewhere that way, Sandlin said. A computer, some books, still in boxes. I used to run a bookshop, but I found I wasn't suited for it. I didn't like when people bought things. I like to have all my books with me. It was a vast, amazing collection. Justin could feel his pulse speed, and a smile crept onto his face. Best to get started, said Sandlin, turning and walking back up the stairs. You have to leave before midnight. I have guests. Justin couldn't imagine that there'd been many visitors entering through the front door, considering how thick the dust was upstairs. The wooden planks under his feet, however, were swept clean. Sandlin stopped at the landing, gesturing grandly as he called down. It is my belief that books are living things. That sent a shiver up Justin's spine as he thought of Linda. And as living things, they need to be protected. Sandlin walked the rest of the way up the stairs. Justin rubbed his arms and bit back what he wanted to say. It was readers that needed to be protected, he thought. Books were something that happened to readers. Readers were the victims of books. He'd considered this a lot at the bookstore, 
once Linda was gone and before he'd lost the job altogether. Grim-faced women would come in, dressed sensibly, pleading for a sequel like they were pleading for a lover's life. Children would sit on the rug and cry inconsolably over picture books where rabbits lost their mothers. The desk, when he found it, was ordinary. Gray metal rusted at the corners, and the PC sitting on top was old enough that it had a floppy disk. The keyboard felt sticky under his fingers. Justin opened his backpack and looked in at Linda's book. When packing the night before, he found that he couldn't bring himself to leave it behind. 200. Religion Justin had always opened new books with a sense of dread, but no dread could compare with opening Linda's book. Sometimes the Militia were arresting a member of her new family, or she was swallowing priceless rubies so that she could smuggle them out of Russia. Occasionally, she was in love, or drinking strong tea out of a samovar, or dancing. He remembered her with ink-stained fingers and a messy apartment full of paperbacks. He'd lived there with her when they both worked in the bookstore. She was allergic to cats, but she couldn't resist petting the stray that the owner kept, and her nose was always red from sneezing. She made spaghetti with olives when she was depressed. He remembered the way they curled up together on the futon and read to one another. He remembered his laughing confession that he opened new books with a sense of dread, akin to jumping off a cliff with a bungee on. He knew he probably wouldn't hit the rocks, but he was never really sure. Linda didn't understand. She read fearlessly, without care for how things turned out. Things, she said, could always be changed. She told him that she knew how to fold stuff up and put it in books. In the books, inside the stories themselves. She'd proven it to him. She put a single playing card into a paperback edition of Robin Hood, the Ace of Spades. Little John had found it. He'd become convinced it was a sign that they would be defeated by the Sheriff of Nottingham and hanged himself. The merry men were less merry after they found his body. Justin had looked at other editions of Robin Hood, but they were unchanged. After that, he believed her. He'd wanted her to alter other books, like fix Macbeth so that no one died. She said that Macbeth was unlucky enough without her tampering. They'd fought a lot in their third year together. Linda had heard that there was a man named Mr. Sandlin who could take things out of books as well as putting them in. She wanted them to give up the lease on their apartment and their jobs at the bookstore. She wanted them to enroll in library school. Early one morning, after fighting all night, a fight that had started out about moving and wound up about every hateful thing they'd ever thought about one another, she folded herself up and put herself into a fat Russian novel. Oh God, oh God, oh, oh God, oh God, Justin had said. Please, no, please, oh God, please. He'd opened the cover to see an illustration of her in pen and ink, sitting 
in a group of unsmiling characters. After that, he couldn't tell her that he was sorry, or that her bolshy, sympathizing uncle was going to expose her in the next chapter, or that she was going to regret leaving him now that she was stuck in an ice storm with only a mink cloak and muff to protect her. He was just a reader, and readers can't do anything to make the story stop. Except close the book. 300. Social Sciences The next time that Sandland opened the door, he was dressed less impressively, in pajamas with blue stripes. He greeted Justin with a huge yawn. Am I early? Justin asked, although he knew he wasn't. Sandlin shook his head and waved Justin in. Time I got up anyway. Right. I'll be downstairs, said Justin, as Sandlin dumped out the coffee pot and filled it with water from the tap. The collection, which had looked so grand at first sight, was, on closer inspection, quite odd. None of the books seemed to be first editions. Many were not even hardcover. Tattered paperbacks nestled up against reprinted hardcover editions of classics with their spines cracked. Some books even appeared to be galleys from publishers marked for review purposes only, not for resale. Most of the books were easy to classify. They were almost all 800s, mostly 810s or 820s. He glanced at the backs of their covers and the copyright pages and then typed their titles into the database. On the spines of each, he taped a label printed in marker. After he finished a dozen, Justin decided that he should start shelving. He lifted the stack, inhaling book dust, and headed into the aisles. The problem with everything being in the 800s is that the markers on the ends of the shelves blurred together. Justin took a few turns and then wasn't sure he knew where he was going or where he could find the places for the books in his arms. Sandlin? he called, but although his voice echoed in the vast room, he doubted it was loud enough to carry all the way upstairs. He turned again. A plastic drink stirrer rested on the floor. Bending to pick it up, he felt panic rise. Where was he? He thought he was retracing his steps. By the time he found his way back to the desk... He felt a faintly ridiculous but almost overwhelming sense of relief. Sarah leaned back in her seat and sat a roll of twine in front of him. I heard you got the Sandlin job, Sarah said. My friend used to work there, said it was like a maze. This is his Theseus trick. That's smart, Justin said thinking of Theseus picking his way through the Minotaur's lair, unwinding Ariadne's string behind him, thinking of how his heart had pounded when he was lost in the stacks. It wasn't just smart. It was clever, even classical. He wished he'd thought of it. Rock, paper, scissors to see if I can come with you. No way, Justin said. I could lose my job. My friend said some other stuff. About what happens after midnight. Come on. If you win, I'll tell you everything I know. If I win, I get to come. Fine. Justin scowled, but Sarah didn't seem to be cowed. She raised a brow studded with tiny silver bars. Rock. Paper. Scissors.
Her rock smashed his scissors. Best two out of three, Justin said, but he knew he was already defeated. Tomorrow night, said Sarah, with a smile that he couldn't interpret. In fact, the more he thought about it, the less he knew about why she'd started talking to him at all. 400. Language. That night, Justin tucked the string and Linda's book into his backpack and drove to Sandlin's house. He worked his way through cataloging an entire box of books when, on impulse, he flipped a thin volume open. The spine of the book read Pride and Prejudice, so Justin was surprised to find Indiana Jones in the text. Apparently, he'd been sleeping his way through all the Jane Austen books and had seduced both Kitty and Lydia Bennet. Justin discovered this fact when Eleanor Tilney from Northanger Abbey showed up to confront Indy with his illegitimate child. He looked at the page and read it twice just to be sure. To Catherine and Lydia, neither Miss Tilney nor her claims were in any degree interesting. It was next to impossible that Miss Tilney had told the truth, and although it was now some weeks since they had received pleasure from the society of Mr. Jones, they had every confidence in him. As for their mother, she was weathering the blow with a degree of composure which astonished her husband and daughters. He closed the book, set it back on the shelf, and opened another, Peter Pan. In it, Sherlock Holmes deduced that Tinkerbell had poisoned Windy, while Watson complained to the mermaids that no one understood his torrid romance with one of the shepherdesses from a poem. Windy's ghost flitted around, quoting lines from Macbeth. Peter wasn't in the book at all. He'd left to be a valet to Lord Rochester in a play of which no one had ever heard. Justin shut Peter Pan so quickly that one of the pages cut a thin line in his index finger. He stuck his bleeding finger in his mouth and tasted ink and sweat. It made him feel vaguely nauseous. 500. Natural Sciences and Mathematics Scrambling over to his backpack, Justin started unrolling the string. It dragged across the floors, through the aisles, as he wound his way through the maze of shelves. At first, it was just books, but as he moved deeper into the stacks, he discovered a statue of a black-haired man in a long blue robe and eyes that glittered like they were set with glass, a velvet fainting couch, and a forgotten collection of champagne flutes containing the dregs of a greenish liquid beside a single jet button. He glanced at the shelves, thinking of Sandlin's pajamas and Sarah's words. My friend said some other stuff about what happens after midnight. A party happened here, a party with guests that never disturbed the dust upstairs, that never entered or exited through the front hall. A party with guests that were already in the house. Guests that were inside the books. He shuddered, then laughed a little at himself. This was what he'd been hoping for, after all. Now, he just had to count on the fact that Sandlin wouldn't notice one more book. That night, Justin called out his usual farewell to Mr. Sandlin before sneaking back down the library stairs. 
He climbed one of the old ladders along the far wall and cracked open a high, thin window. Then he rolled onto the very top of the bookshelf and flattened himself against the wood. Something banged against the glass. Wow, we're pretty high up, said Sarah as she slid inside. Her foot knocked a stack of papers and a bookend shaped like a nymph crashed to the floor. Shit! Careful! whispered Justin. He knew he sounded prissy as soon as it came out of his mouth, but Sarah didn't seem like a very careful person. So, she said. She wore a tattered black coat covered in paint stains, and a new hoop gleamed in her eyebrow. The skin around it was puffy and red. Here we are. This is it. What's it? This is where Richard hid. My friend. Pretty genius, right? He could see everything from up here. And whoever looks up? She answered her own question with a nod. Nobody. Did he say what happens now? The books come to life. Her voice was filled with awe like she was about to take a sacrament from the Holy Church of Literature. Justin looked at his bag where Linda's Russian novel rested. He had a sudden urge to pitch it out the window. How do you think that happens? There are so many... He wasn't sure how to end that sentence. Characters? Settings? Books? A footfall kept him from finding out. Shh, said Sarah, completely unnecessarily. Sandlin appeared, walking down the stairs with a crate. Justin crawled forward to see him begin to set up bottles and a cheese platter. He removed red grapes from their plastic-covered package and set them carefully on one end of the tray, then stepped back to look at his arrangement. He appeared to be satisfied because when he turned around, he made a motion with his hands, and a ripple went through the shelves. The books shuddered, and then, one by one, the room began to fill with people. They climbed out of the stacks, brushing themselves off, sometimes hopping from a high place, sometimes crawling out of what seemed like a very cramped low shelf. Justin looked over at his backpack in time to see the women in high-necked dresses and men in uniforms scamper down. He looked for Linda, but from the back, he wasn't sure which one she was. He started to follow, but Sarah grabbed his arm. What are you doing? she hissed. You said to be careful, remember? He leaned over the side, scanning all the faces for Linda's. He tried to remember what she looked like. He kept thinking of lines of description instead. Her hair was thick, chestnut curls like the shining mane of a horse in the book. He was pretty sure he'd read a passage about her eyes being amber as the pin at her throat, but he remembered them as brown. Women with powdered cones of hair and black masks on sticks swept past knights decked out for jousting and comic book heroes in slinky, rubbery suits. A wolf in a top hat and tails conversed with a wizard in a robe of moons and stars as fairies flew over their heads. He thought he saw Linda near the grapes, whispering behind a fan. He strained to hear what she said, but all he heard were other conversations. Without quite meaning to, he realized what he was hearing. Sarah, 
Justin pointed to a large-shouldered man, decked out in lace, with a slim sword at his hip and a small reddish flower in his hands. He was lazily chatting up a skinny, red-headed young woman in jeans and a t-shirt. "'Damned smart you are,' said the man. "'Pretty, too. I've been assured my taste is unerring, so there's no need to protest.' "'Sarah,' said Justin, "'that's the Scarlet Pimpernel.' "'Oh, my God,' Sarah whispered back, wriggling closer. "'I think you're right. Percy Blakeney. I had such a crush on him.' I think he's hitting on that girl. Isn't that... She paused. Can't be. But I think that girl is Anne of Green Gables. Justin squinted. I, I never read it. I heard her say something about there being no one like him in Avonlea, said Sarah. What's she doing in jeans? Anne! Anne, don't do it! Shh! Justin said. He's married! Marguerite will kick your ass! Justin tried to put his hand over her mouth can't just... Sarah pulled away, but she seemed a little bit embarrassed. Chill out. She couldn't hear me anyway, and I wasn't the one who almost climbed down there. He looked back into the crowd, tamping down both rising panic and chaotic glee. Characters shouldn't be able to meet like this, to mix and converse anachronistically and anarchically in the basement of a house in Jersey. It seemed profane, perverse, and yet it was the perversion itself that tempted him to dangerous joy. Okay, jeesh, said Sarah, mistaking the reason for his silence. I'm sorry I got carried away. Hey, who's that in the gold armor, standing near... Oh, she stopped. Is that Wolverine talking to a Wolverine in a dress? Which one's wearing the dress, Justin asked, but the grin slid off his face when he saw Linda move away from the refreshments. She was talking to a man in a doublet. Sarah put her hand on his arm. Who are you staring at? You look really weird. That's my girlfriend, said Justin. A character in a book is your girlfriend? She put herself there. We had an argument. It's, it's not important. I'm just trying to get her out again. Sarah stared at him. But her expression said, I don't believe you. You did something bad to your girlfriend to make her put herself in a book. Her earrings swung like pendulums, dowsing for guilty secrets. You knew what was going on here when you applied for this job, didn't you? So? Justin asked. Oh, you wanted it too, didn't you? I just called first. Well, she's out of the book now. You don't look too happy. Justin scowled, and they said little to each other after that. They just rested on their stomachs on the dusty bookshelves and watched the crowd swirl and eddy beneath them, watched little Lord Fauntleroy piss in a corner and an albino in armor mutter to the black sword in his hands as he headed for one of the more private and shadowed parts of the library. And Justin watched as Linda flitted among them, laughing with pleasure. Oh, you doth teach the torches to burn bright, the man in the doublet told her. What a line, Justin thought ruefully. I hope she knows he's quoting Shakespeare. Then, an unpleasant thought occurred to him. Who was Linda talking to? Lo, John Golf has eaten all the salsa, 
said a knight in green armor adorned with leaves. Oh, how awful, said Dolly Alexandrova from Anna Karenina. She smoothed her gown, looking exactly like a painting of her Justin had seen. I won't forgive him, and I can't forgive him. He persists in doing this every night. Justin wondered why none of them spoke in Russian or French or whatever, but then it occurred to him that all the books were in translation. The logic made him dizzy. Who's John Galt? growled Wolverine around the cigar in his mouth. Anne of Green Gables danced a waltz with a man that Justin failed to recognize and wasn't going to ask Sarah about. Stephen Daedalus got into a fistfight with Werther. Hamlet shouted at them to stop, yelling, It is but foolery! But they didn't stop, until Werther got hit hard enough that his nose bled. Justin thought that, after being punched, he looked weirdly like the guy on the cover of the modern library reprint edition of Werther, where his whole face is wet with tears. How can I, how can you be annihilated? Werther spat. We exist. What is annihilation? A mere word, an unmeaning sound that fixes no impression on the mind. Stephen's knuckles looked bruised. Whatever, he said. Linda sunk down beside Werther, silky skirts billowing around her, and dabbed at the blood on his face with a handkerchief. What was she doing? It made no sense. She didn't even like Goethe. She'd complained that Werther was a coward and whiny besides. Justin started to climb down the bookshelf. Sandlin shouted something at that moment, and then a great gust of wind blew through the library, and when it had gone, so had all the party guests. Gone. Linda was gone. Justin looked out the small window, and, sure enough, the sky was beginning to lighten outside. Reaching for his pack, he opened Linda's book and flipped frantically, scanning each page for her name. Nothing. Gone. 600. Technology. Applied Sciences. The next day at the break, Sarah brought a cup of coffee from the machine and set it on the desk in front of him without resorting to rock, paper, or scissors. He still wore the same clothes from the night before, and when he looked down at his notebook, all he had written was, Faceted Classification, with several lines drawn under the words. He had no idea what that meant. I should be mad at you, she said, but you're just too pathetic. He picked up the coffee and took a sip. He was glad it was warm. She sat on the edge of his desk. Okay, so... Tell me about your girlfriend. What happened? I don't know. We just started fighting. She wanted to meet Sandlin, but I wanted to stay at the bookstore. Then, this. And by this, you mean that instead of locking herself in the bathroom or throwing a vase at you, she put herself in a book and didn't come out. Yeah, Justin said, looking at the desk. You might seriously consider that that translates to breaking up with you. He scrubbed his hand over his face. His skin felt rougher than his stubble. I don't think she knew how to get out. But, as he thought back on it, he couldn't recall reading that she wanted to. Characters in Russian novels are big on bemoaning their personal tragedy. It seemed that she wouldn't have been left out. Sarah shrugged. You said that she wanted to meet Sandlin. You brought her to him. You're done. 
I never got to say I was sorry. Are you? Sarah took a sip from her cup and made a face. Justin scowled. What kind of question is that? Well, you don't even seem to know what you did, or if you did anything. He looked down at the laces of his sneakers, the dirty knots that he hated untangling so much that he just pulled the things off and on. Now, they were hopeless. The knots would never come out. He sighed. Do you even like books? Sarah asked. She waved her hand around. Was all this for her? Of course I like books, Justin said, looking up. He didn't know how to explain. He'd started library school to get Linda to Sandlin, but he actually liked it. It felt good to carefully organize the books so that other people would know what they were getting themselves into. I've always liked books. I, I just don't trust them. What about people? Sarah asked. He looked at her blankly. Do you trust people? I guess. I mean, sure, within reason. I don't think people usually have terrible secrets the way characters do, but people often aren't as amazing, either. We're watered down. I have a secret, Sarah said. I compete in rock-paper-scissors tournaments. He laughed. I'm serious, Sarah said. Wait a minute. You mean you cheated me out of all that coffee? For a moment, Justin just looked at her. She seemed different now that he knew she had secrets, even if they were kind of lame ones. Hey, she said, I won fairly. But you're like a pool shark or something. You have strategies. Sarah shook her head. Okay, you want my RPS secret? It's about understanding people. Rock's basically a weapon, like something an ogre might hurl. It's an angry throw. Some people shy away from it because it seems crude, but they'll use it if they're desperate. Okay, Justin said. Now, scissors. Scissors are shiny and sharp. Still dangerous, but more elegant, like a rapier. Lots of people make their first throw scissors because it seems like the clever throw, the rakish throw, the hipster throw. Really? Justin frowned. You threw it the first time, and the second. He thought back, but he couldn't recall. He wondered which play Sarah usually opened with. Was it always rock? Now, paper. Paper's interesting. Some people consider it a wimpy throw, and they use it very infrequently. Others consider it the most subtle throw. Words can, they say, be more dangerous than rocks or scissors. Of course, scissors still cut paper, Sarah said. Oh, said Justin suddenly, getting up. They do. You're right. He could cut Linda out like a paper doll. 700. The Arts Justin pulled book after book from the shelves, not caring about their spines, not caring about the mess he made, scanning each one for a mention of Linda. They piled up around him, and the dust coated his hands, ink smearing his fingers as he ran them down countless pages. Heavy, metal scissors weighed down the pocket of his coat, and sometimes his hand would drop inside to touch their cool surface, 
before emptying another shelf. What are you doing? Sandlin asked. Justin jumped up, hand still in his pocket. Sandlin was dressed in another waistcoat. A single silver pin held a crevet in place at his neck. He sneezed. I'm looking for my girlfriend. She got out of her book, but I don't know which book she got into. The girl with all the piercings I saw you hiding with last night? No, said Justin, trying not to seem as rattled as he felt. If Sandlin knew... No, he couldn't dwell on that. That's Sarah. Linda's my girlfriend, or she was, and she knew how to put things into books. She put herself in a Russian novel, but last night you took her out, and I don't know what book she's in now. Sandlin ran his hand over his short beard. You see, Justin said, his voice rising, she could be anywhere, in danger. Novels are always putting characters in peril because it's exciting. Characters die. Your problem isn't with books, it's with girls, Sandlin said. What? Justin demanded. Girls, said Sandlin. You don't know why they do the things they do. Who does? I'm sure they feel the same about us. Hell, I'm sure they feel the same way about each other. But the books, said Justin. Fiction. I used to own a bookstore before I inherited a lot of money from my great aunt. The money went to a cat first, but when the cat died, I was loaded. Decided I'd shut my store down, sleep all day, and do whatever I wanted. This is it. But, but what about what you said about books being alive, needing our protection? Sandlin waved his hand vaguely. Look, I love spending time with characters from books. I love the strange friendships that spring up, the romances. I don't want to lose any of them. Did you know that Naruto has become close to Edmond Dantes and a floating skull with glowing red eyes? Couldn't make that up if I tried. But it's still fiction. Even if it's happening in my basement, it's not real. Justin looked at him in disbelief. But books feel real. Surely they must seem more real to you than anyone. They can hurt you. and break your heart. It wasn't a book said Sandlin, that broke your heart. 800. Literature and Rhetoric Justin went home and slept for the rest of the day and night. When he woke up too early to do much else, he opened a familiar paperback and reread it. Then he went to a cafe and bought two cups of coffee to bring to class. Oh, wow, said Sarah, Double latte with a sprinkle of cinnamon? I think I just drooled on myself. You still have to win it, he said. You made up the rules. Now be made miserable by them. She made a fist. You sure you don't want to pick some game you're good at? Her earrings swung and glittered. Justin wondered if she wore them to tournaments to distract her opponents. He wondered if it worked. He wished he could raise an eyebrow, but he tried to give her the look that might accompany one. Your funeral, said Sarah. Rock, paper, scissors. Scissors cut paper. Justin won. He gave her the coffee anyway. I didn't think you'd throw scissors again, she said, since I pointed out that you threw it the first two times. Exactly. See, he thought. I don't have a problem figuring out girls. Just one girl.
possibly himself. 900. Geography and History Later that week, Justin attended the midnight party at Sandlin's house. He walked through the front door, disturbing as much dust as he could before heading down the stairs. He arrived fashionably late. Characters were making toasts. "'Salut!' a group shouted together. "'To absent friends, lost lovers, old gods, and the—' started another before Justin walked out of earshot. He touched the heavy scissors in his pocket. His plan had changed. Linda sat on a stool in black robes embroidered with the Hogwarts emblem and talked earnestly to a frog in a crown. Imps, nearby— appeared to be sticking a lit match between the stitches on the sole of a boot belonging to a chain-smoking blonde man with a thick British accent. Linda, said Justin, I have to talk to you. Linda turned and something like panic crossed her face. She stood. Justin? Don't bother thanking me for bringing you to Sandlin, he said. I won't bother saying I'm sorry. You were right. I'm glad I moved, glad I started library school, but what you did... I'd always wanted to, she said. Put myself in a book. It wasn't you. It would have happened eventually. Look, what I came to say was that you have responsibilities in the real world. Your parents haven't heard from you in forever. What you're doing isn't safe. You have to come back. No, she said firmly. I'm not ready yet. Not now, when I can visit any book I want. I'll come out when I'm ready. You should have stayed and fought with me, said Justin. It wasn't fair. I could have put you in a book, she tilted her head. I still could. He took an involuntary step back, and she laughed. You don't deserve it, though, she said. You don't love books the way I do. He opened his mouth to protest, and then closed it. It was true. He didn't know how she loved books, only that he loved them differently. She turned away from him, and he let her go. He stayed for the rest of the party, and after all the characters were back in their books, he took Harry Potter off the shelf. Found the girl? Sandlin asked. Justin nodded and took the scissors out of his pocket. What what are you going to do? Sandlin sounded nervous. Justin turned on the old computer. I'm going to change the story, just a little. No one will notice. He flipped to a page where Linda's name appeared, and carefully cut her out. Sandlin winced. Don't worry, Justin said. It's just fiction. He typed a few words and printed out the page. Then he carefully taped Linda's name in place, so that the sentence read, Linda doesn't just know how to put things in books. She knows how to get things out again, including herself. Hopefully someday she will. Folding the paper in half, he tucked it between the pages. When he left... He didn't take the book with him.
welcome back. For me, libraries and fantasy fiction are always fun to explore, whether it's Lucian's library of unwritten books and Neil Gaiman's The Sandman, places of self-discovery and coming of age is visited in Ellen Clages' In the House of Seven Librarians, something of a podcastle classic, or portals to other worlds guarded by extreme librarians in China Mievels in London. But I also like visiting otherworldly carnivals and floating markets. They're all great places to linger for hours and that our imaginations sometimes love too much to forget. But I love how this story goes farther, how Holly Black playfully examines so much about our relationship with fiction and stories, how stories aren't tame, and how they come to life, invade our lives even, and swallow us up inside them. It's what some of us go out of our way for, to find the piece of imagination that consumes us, maybe even changes us, and what we do next. For me, that's the sheer brilliance of what Holly Black's done here. How the relationship between the reader and the text becomes significantly blurred and poses the question, once it's written, who really owns the story? The author? The publisher? The audience? Because when we, the audience, interact with it, when we adapt it, react to it, tweet, blog, or Facebook it, when we tell all our friends about it, when it charges our imagination to make something whether it be to write fan fiction or create new worlds altogether, when our imaginations are expanded and we interact with this gift the author's given us, something comes into being that wasn't there before. A sort of community between the text, the author, and us. In a very real sense, it becomes a shared property. It's still the author's story, of course, but when she shares it and when we allow ourselves to be enveloped and transformed by it, then share it and the new experiences our imaginations have created, well, all of a sudden there's many more new possibilities right around the bookshelf. So go check them out and be inspired. Also, if you or someone you know should encounter some of that dangerous Indiana Jones and Jane Austen slash fic, my email address is dave at escapeartist.net. Thanks. Okay. Feedback for Podcastle 109, Michael Greenhut's Watermark, read by Amy Elk. This was a surprise bonus episode we scheduled for Father's Day weekend, and for the most part, people seemed to enjoy it. Atan said, while I was expecting some sort of twist in the end, the nature of the twist surprised me. I was expecting it to involve the sister, not just the general, oh boy, just got a prophecy that suggests I may have been safe or dead. I'm not entirely sure whether I liked that or not, but I did like how the personality and history of the drowned girl came out from her letters. Listener said, I liked it, and while I'm not 100% sure Darielle was doing the right thing by killing her younger sister, before she could do all this evil she said she was going to do, it certainly is an interpretation that gives the story that much more gravity. It explores the concept of doing evil for greater good. Whereas the father, by saving the protagonist, is doing good that causes evil later. Good reading, too. Our forum members were generally enthused about the fact that author Michael Greenhut's writing a novel set in this world, although several people worried that this might deter from their enjoyment of the short story itself, especially the ambiguity of the story's ending. You can find that discussion, as well as one on this week's story, at forum.escapeartist.net. Let me be unambiguous with you for a few moments. We rely on you, the audience, to keep furnishing this ever-expanding library here at Podcastle so we can broadcast the stories to you from our pirate feed for free. Your donations keep our authors paid, cover our costs, and allow us to bring you stories every week. So if you can help out by donating some money, 
please visit podcastle.org and consider not just what our community has done for you, but what you can do for our community. Every donation, no matter the size, is greatly appreciated. Thank you. That's it for this week. Thanks for letting all of us here at Podcastle share another story with you. We'll continue our exploration into the borderlands of fantasy next time when Deborah Kalin presents us with a thesis of her story, The Wages of Salt. Don't worry, this thesis is pretty thrilling. Until then, enjoy getting lost in your own personal labyrinthian libraries, be they real or be they imagined. We'll see you all back here in a week. Oh, and uh, don't forget, Dave at EscapeArtists.net. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Neil Gaiman said, There are only two worlds. Your world, which is the real world, and other worlds, the fantasy. Worlds like this are worlds of the human imagination. Their reality, or lack of reality, is not important. What is important is that they are there. These worlds provide an alternative, provide an escape, provide a threat, provide a dream and power, provide refuge and pain. They give your world meaning. They do not exist, and thus they are all that matters. of measureless quality